Now, please take your Bibles and turn to the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 6. We come to chapter 6 tonight. We'll consider the first eight verses. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And listen to this. It's this, it's the very word of God. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered me and said, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. That is the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for giving them to us. Thank you that they are our inheritance. We ask you uh, to bless them to us now and instruct us and encourage our hearts through your word, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory and for his sake. Amen. So as we come to this passage, in the beginning of Zechariah chapter 6, we come to the last of Zechariah's night visions. You remember when we got to the very first one, Zechariah saw that vision at night. And then as each vision comes immediately after the previous, and there's no other kind of time stamp, it's generally understood uh, by uh, Bible scholars that these visions all occurred in a row in one night. And so they're referred to as Zechariah's night visions. This is the eighth and final night vision of Zechariah. And it is admittedly difficult to interpret. In fact, uh, so... Uh, Faithful and able and expositor as Matthew Poole said as much. In fact, uh, this is what Matthew Poole said about it. Referring to the fact that, you know, it's obvious what chariots are and what horses are. And what the text says is pretty obvious. Matthew Poole said, the appearance or emblem is plain enough. We can easily conceive that. But the things signified hereby are most difficult to find out and perhaps not found when we think they are. So even a brother of the stature of Matthew Poole uh, wrestled with this passage. I did, of course. Uh, that's why when we get to our closing hymn, it might not seem to have a tremendous amount to do with the message or the text, but that just goes to show you, you know, I chose the hymn long before I finished the sermon, and I thought this sermon was going to go somewhere uh, much different than it ended up going. Uh, so again, it's a challenging 
passage, but uh, here's what I think you can take away from it. God is working out His purposes among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and of course among His beloved children. Really, this is the message of this passage. However we interpret the particulars of the vision, God is working out His purposes, and He does so. He works out His purposes in the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and in a particular way, among His beloved children. Well, before we get into the meaning of the horses, uh, you see on your outline, um, point number one is hermeneutics. I thought this would be a very appropriate opportunity to, to just give a, uh, a few remarks about hermeneutics. And I'll tell you what that word means in case you don't know. Before, right before the service, my wife came into my office and said, there are already people out there asking, what, what are hermeneutics? Uh, you're going to tell them, right? And so I thought about it and I figured, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll tell them. Uh, now, hermeneutics um, is uh, the study of principles and methods of interpretation. So it's the science of interpretation. And then, uh, and then you apply those principles and those methods when you're trying to discern the meaning of a text, particularly a text of Scripture. So a seminary student will generally take a course in hermeneutics. I did. Um, so that'll be, I just want to take a little bit of time to talk. And we, there's certainly not enough time to give a comprehensive lesson on hermeneutics, but I just want to offer some principles about the interpretation of God's Word that might help, particularly when we encounter passages such as this one that are difficult, admittedly difficult to understand. And then we'll go on to the horses after that. But first of all, again, hermeneutics is the study of principles and methods of interpretation. And in this context, particularly the interpretation of God's Word. And interpreting God's Word, of course, is of paramount importance in the Christian faith. You think of the use that our Lord Jesus made of parables, short stories, metaphors intended to teach a lesson. And they were lessons frequently about the kingdom of heaven. But the pictures and the stories he would use to teach lessons about the kingdom of heaven would be about things like seeds planted in the ground or treasure hidden in a field. So hermeneutics has to do with how do we interpret those pictures? How do you interpret a parable? A figure? And you know from having read the Gospels that Jesus taught in parables and some people understood the message and some people didn't. Because some people didn't interpret it properly. Or maybe they didn't even go to the trouble of trying to interpret it. They just thought, well, isn't that a neat story? And then they went on with their lives, which is what so many people do. Now, the Scriptures use words figuratively at times. You know that. The Scriptures aren't like some kind of scientific uh, manual. They speak in flowery, poetic language sometimes. They speak in figurative language. Scripture uses metaphor. It uses hyperbole. 
And we have to discern those things. So just for example, if you'll turn with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. This will be a familiar sounding passage. Psalm 18 verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now God is not literally almost any of those things that verse 2 of Psalm 18 says that He is. So there's some meaning behind the fact that God is described by the psalmist here as a rock or as a fortress, as a horn, a stronghold, and so on. God is not literally those things, but those things teach us things about what God is, what He does. Or think about that expression you find in the New Testament, brood of vipers. Remember, there were some people that came to John the Baptist. Pharisees. Scribes. And and John called them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later, Jesus Himself uses the same expression to speak to some people. Brood of vipers. Well, They weren't literally vipers. They're human beings. A viper is a snake. So what does he mean by brood of vipers? That's that's what hermeneutics is all about. Interpreting language. Or when Jesus told his disciples, they're in the boat, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples start to scratch their heads and Think, oh, you know, it's because we didn't bring bread. And Jesus gets a little frustrated with them, doesn't he? Because he he says, how is it that you didn't understand that I wasn't speaking to you about bread? They needed to refine their hermeneutic. Well, Scripture contains many such sayings. And Scripture contains many dreams, accounts of dreams and of visions. And when we encounter those things in Scripture, we have to be, very, we have to be especially careful in how we interpret them. We have to remember this. They're recorded for our instruction. So when we run into a vision like this one in Zechariah 6, or the many visions that John sees in Revelation, or other visions that prophets record in, the, in their writings in Holy Scripture, we've got to remember that that's what they are. They're visions. They're dreams. They all have a meaning. How is it that we determine what that meaning is? Well, as we interpret visions, as we interpret dreams, it's important to remember that you know the dreams in Scripture, a lot of times they're like our dreams. Am I the only one here who has dreams that are kind of weird? Am I the only one in here who has a dream and I, and I know where I am, but in my dream it doesn't look like that actual place looks? Things like that happen in dreams, don't they? 
Well, they happen in the dreams of the Bible too, even though those dreams are inspired, given by God to teach something. But we've got to remember, a dream is weird sometimes. A vision can be weird sometimes. There are strange elements in them. There are abnormalities. Things are distorted. And so when we interpret biblical dreams and biblical visions, we need to treat them like dreams and like visions. We need to treat them, I think, like pictures, not puzzles. Does that make sense? They're a picture intended to convey a message, not some kind of a secret code for us to decipher, usually. We need to read them like fantasy. I remember reading a Bible study uh, on the book of Revelation. And the author was saying, you know what? Usually kids can understand Revelation a whole lot better than grown-ups can. And he had a conversation with a young person in his church. And the, and the young person said to him, I think I understand what Revelation is about. And this pastor said, yeah, tell me. And he says, well, I just read it like it's fantasy, except it's true. And the guy thought to himself, he's got it. So when we seek to determine meaning in Scripture, especially in some passages like visions and dreams, let me just provide as a little bit of instruction in hermeneutics, a few guiding principles for interpretation. This is not all the principles there are, but these are some uh, just to, to share that I hope will be helpful, particularly when reading and trying to make sense of passages like the one we're looking at tonight. Remember this, first and foremost. In the words of Romans 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. That's why the Scriptures were inscripturated for us. They weren't written to confuse us. They weren't written to send us on wild goose chases or in interpretive uh, uh, gymnastics. Scripture is for all of God's people for all time. So even this text has meaning that you can apply, that I can apply, meaning that is relevant to us today. That's got to be the case. And so we ought to interpret this passage with that in mind. Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 8, had meaning. It had relevance for the people in Zechariah's day and for people in all ages. So, as you come to a passage of Scripture and you're inclined towards a certain interpretation of it, but if your interpretation has little or no relevance to, relevance to the original audience, then you're probably on the wrong track. And I say that to kind of apply it to the way a lot of people tend to interpret the book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation as though it had no relevance to the people to whom John was actually writing in his day, then something's wrong with your hermeneutic. The book of Revelation can't just be about things that are going to happen in the 21st century. It has to have meaning. It has to have import. It has to have relevance 
to the original audience. And if, if our interpretation is such that it wouldn't have that kind of relevance to them, then it's probably a false interpretation. Now, the other way around uh, is not quite as much of a problem because if the interpretation is mostly related to the original audience, there can still be application for people in all ages. So, scriptures were written for our instruction and that our includes God's people in every age. Secondly, it's important to notice and to, and to keep in mind that prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. I can think of a couple right off the top of my head that do. Remember when uh, the, the woman uh, came and to Jesus and she, she poured that very, very expensive ointment on him and anointed him with it. And he said, she's preparing me, prepared me beforehand for burial. And he says, I tell you truly, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in all the earth, this story will be told in memory of her. And every time that passage is read, every time that passage is preached, every time that passage is taught on, that prophecy of Jesus is fulfilled once again. Right? One example right there. But I think another, of another, um, Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. We looked at that together some time ago. Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in original context... That very obviously referred to the nation of Israel and it very obviously referred to the fact that God had brought them out of bondage in the land of Egypt and into the land that he'd promised to their fathers. And that becomes even more obvious as you go on because he speaks of how the more they were called, the more they went away. And he's talking about the rebellion and the idol worship of the people of Israel. So in original context, that was about something that happened in the past. But in prophetic context, you go to the New Testament and in Matthew 2, verse 15, Scripture says that that was fulfilled in Christ. So you have at least two fulfillments of that passage. And then I think there's a theological fulfillment as well because God brings you out of Egypt. Every single time He calls a sinner out of darkness into light, draws a person uh, out of death into life in Christ Jesus, that person theologically, spiritually, is being brought out of Egypt, as it were. So there's multiple applications, and prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. So scripture is for all of God's people for all time. There, there aren't any scriptures that have no relevance to you. There aren't any scriptures that have no relevance to God's people at, at some period of time in redemptive history or other even those things that are now done away the levitical sacrifices which have been abrogated because they were all fulfilled in christ they teach us so those scriptures are relevant to us as well there are things we can learn from them and they all of course point to christ so there's that scriptures for all of god's people for all time but secondly uh, and I'm borrowing this from Alistair Begg. Very, very important principle of interpretation. The plain things are the main things. 
and the main things are the plain things. There may be things in this text we're looking at tonight that are obscure and difficult to understand, but the thing that's important for us to understand is the thing that's very plain, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Our confession of faith even says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. And you know that. I hope you've uh, developed the practice of reading all the way through God's Word. If you haven't, start now. Let this be the year that you finally do that. Read all the way through God's Word and then do it again and then do it again. Be a lifelong student of God's Word. And as you read God's Word, some things are going to be very easy to understand and some things are just going to leave you scratching your head. Not all things in Scripture are like plain in themselves. Now, on the one hand, we should try to mine deeply into the riches and the depths of Scripture. Uh, we're, we're commanded to search for wisdom as if it were like hidden treasure. So it's good for us to really dig deep in the Scriptures, and I encourage you to do that. But on the other hand, we have to avoid forcing things from the text that aren't there. And we should avoid uh, staking a lot on any interpretation that's at all speculative. Right? The plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. But above all that, uh, let me just quickly give you the three most important rules of Scripture interpretation. You ready? Here they are. The three most important rules of Scripture interpretation. Context. Context, context. Even if there's some rule that seems absolute in terms of Scripture interpretation, there are probably exceptions somewhere. How do we know what any given passage of Scripture means, what it teaches, how we apply it? You use context. The immediate context and then the context of all other Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Right? So there's a quick lesson in hermeneutics. Now we're going to try to apply some of that as we talk about the horses. So, the immediate context of this vision is all those other visions. And as I said, there are eight of them. And the first vision and the last vision both involve horses. Colored horses, various, various colored horses. And they're going out. And so they form those two visions. Remember the first one was those, those visions and they went, the, 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 those horses that went to patrol the earth. And all the earth, they said, was at rest. So that's how this whole series of visions began. And as the series of visions come to a conclusion, once again, we're looking at horses. Black horses, white horses. Dappled horses. Red horses. So they form bookends, which suggest very strongly that their meanings are related. Now in both visions, the horses or the chariots, whichever, are under God's control. In chapter 1, it says very plainly that the horses were sent out by the Lord. They were sent out by Him to patrol the earth, and they did what they were sent to do. They patrolled the earth. Here in chapter 6, You've got that image of the chariots presenting themselves before the Lord 
of all the earth. Before they go out, they appear before him. They report. It also says that they came out from between mountains of bronze, indicating that they were sent out by God or from God. Now, both passages, chapter 1 and chapter 6, use the term patrol. And that's an, that's an interpretive choice on the, on the part of the translators of the ESV because the Hebrew word is just, it's the word halak, which simply means to walk or to go. It doesn't necessarily mean to patrol. So, in context, the translators of our ESV Bible decided patrol was a very appropriate way to translate the word halak because there's this sort of military uh, context of, of, the, uh, of the visions. Now, <clears throat> the main difference between chapter 1 and chapter 6 well, chapter 1, you have just horses, riders on horses, and then in chapter 6, chariots being pulled by horses. And the, the horses in chapter 1, they patrolled, and then they brought back a report. That's all they did. That was their essential mission, which suggests that some, what's going on in chapter 1 was, was mostly what we might call today uh, reconnaissance. They're going out, they're taking a survey of the situation, and they brought back a report to the angel of the Lord. In chapter 6, these chariots, chariots are primarily fighting vehicles. They're primarily combat vehicles. And so, rather than just a reconnaissance mission here, when we get to chapter 6, what's maybe in mind is more, something more like a military assault. And that's reinforced by the fact that those chariots that went to the north, it says in verse 8, they set God's spirit at rest in the north country. Did you see that in verse 8? Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. It was in the north country, the country of Babylon, the country of Assyria, uh, in those regions. Those were the people who had taken God's people away into exile. Those were the regions from which the people that, that were enemies of God's people tended to come from. And so God had dealt with them and put his spirit at rest. Now, in chapter 1, I think we saw that the, the horses symbolized God's omniscience because he sent them out to patrol. They patrolled the whole earth. It's that image, that vision, that dream is essentially teaching us that God sees everything that's going on all over the world. Nothing is hidden from Him. He's watching over all the earth. When we get to chapter 6, these chariots symbolize God's sovereign authority over all the earth. He sends out His hosts. He sends out His military might, His strength. It goes out into all the earth, and it does what He desires. It accomplishes His purposes. One of the commentators I read said that the, the horses and chariots comprise a complex symbol representing forces active in the world that God uses to his own ends. The idea being God's in control. He's working out his purposes. 
And so that message is relevant to God's people in all ages. Because just as he is working out his just as he was working out his purposes in the days of Zechariah, he's working out his purposes in our day, too. Now, Zechariah's historical context was there they are, they're back in the land, and they're trying to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're trying to rebuild the temple, and they're discouraged. The work is hard. Their resources are few. And they have potential enemies all around. So in Zechariah's historical context, along with the people that are with him, God's sovereign dealings in the north country pertain to his dealings with Babylon, Persia, and whoever else might threaten the people of Israel from the north. There were those chariots that went to the south. That would pertain perhaps to Egypt or more generally any or all other surrounding foes. The point being God is telling his people, press on with the work. It's going to be okay. I'm in control. Well, what about our context? This vision teaches us to be strong and to be faithful in the midst of a perverse generation. Just as the people in Zechariah's day were striving to get reestablished in their land and rebuild the house of the Lord, we are trying to do the work of the Lord in our day, and it's frustrating and discouraging sometimes, isn't it? It's not always easy. It's not always a walk in the park. But look at verse 7 with me again. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. I love that imagery there. Because it teaches us that the, the angelic host and really all of God's creation, it's under His control and God's creation is zealous to serve Him, to obey Him. You can imagine these horses ready, eager to go patrol. Well, that's how all of God's heavenly host is. They are ready and they are zealous to do the will of God. And we should take comfort in that. That it's all under his control and his servants are eager to serve him and to do his will. And it shows us then, this vision does, that world affairs here in America, in Europe, and everywhere around the world, they're all under the control of God and they're at his disposal. So the application for us then is to press on in the faith, to persevere in the faith, to be firm. It's, it's interesting, if, you, if you've done any reading on this passage or read any commentators, there are some who, who try to find some significance to the various colors of the horses. Well, the white horses mean uh, good providence and the black horses mean difficult or hard providences. Um, I don't know, I guess sometimes people can make some convincing arguments, but I don't really think there's a whole lot of specific significance to the colors of the horses. I didn't think that was the case in chapter 1, and I don't think it's any more significant here. But when we compare these visions with other visions of chariots in Scripture, it does teach us additional lessons. Where else have we seen chariots, angelic chariots, chariots of fire in Scripture? 
when Elijah was about to be taken up and Elisha and he were walking along, when God took Elijah up in the whirlwind to heaven, the two of them were separated by chariots of fire and Elisha cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and her horsemen. Elisha saw other chariots later. He was, he was in the city of Dothan. It's a walled city, but not a very big one. And the commander, uh, or the king, excuse me, of, of Syria sent his army after Elisha. And Elisha's servant goes out onto the front doorstep in the morning to pick up his copy of the Dothan Gazette, and he looks out, and the Syrian army is surrounding the city. And he panics, and he goes to Elisha and says, look at this. And Elisha just prayed, Father, Lord, open his eyes. And when Elisha's servant's eyes were opened, what did he see? He saw horses and chariots of fire surrounding them all over the mountain. And what's really interesting about that to me is God didn't send those chariots to rout the Syrian army. He didn't need to. You know, when God wants to deal with an army, he just needs to dispatch one angel. That's all it took to slay 185,000 Assyrians. Can you imagine if all of God's chariots went after the, the Syrian army? Not necessary. But the vision of those chariots and of those horses was intended to remind Elisha that God has overwhelming power and he's able to come to the help of his people. So these chariots patrol, it says they go out to the four winds of heaven. In other words, they go out to the extent of all the earth. And this vision shows in pictures, in a vision, in a dream, it shows in pictures what's plainly stated in words like Daniel 4, 35. God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Nothing stands in His way. Nothing stops Him. Nothing thwarts Him. Or Isaiah 14, verse 27, The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? In ancient times, mighty kingdoms were rising and falling. Kingdoms would come along and they'd make conquest and then they'd get overrun and conquered by another kingdom. But our God, your God and mine, He was in control of the whole thing. And it's the same in our times. You're reading Table Talk. Burke Parsons, in his introductory comments to this month's issue of Table Talk, said, Wars, rumors of wars, economic recessions, social unrest, and global political controversy abound, just as they have throughout history. Or as uh, Anthony Peterson put it in the ESV expository commentary, here's the message of this passage for you, brothers and sisters. Christians are assured that God has all things in hand, no matter how out of control our world might appear. To put it in modern idiomatic language, he's got this. Because our God is working out his purposes 
among the host of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth, and his beloved children. That's you. He's working out his purposes for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of your sovereignty, of your might, and the fact that you have all things in hand. Lord, let us take comfort in that. Let us be encouraged. Give us peace in our hearts in the midst of a world and in the midst of times that are so bereft of peace. Lord, let us have that peace. No wonder it's called the peace that surpasses comprehension. Thank you that we serve you, O God, the Lord of the universe. Continue to work out your purposes in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.